My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills, and we are in week three of our series called God's at War. And so far, we've talked about how pleasure and the love of other people in our lives can each become idols if we allow them that distract us from God. Remember, an idol is anything that you put in God's place. And so today I want to talk about an idol that almost all of us, well, let's face it, all of us, right, struggle with in one way or another, and that's the God of money. And whether we admit it or not, many of us find our self-worth in our net worth. We want to get rich or we want to die trying, right? And we go out of our way to give the appearance of wealth, even if we don't have it. And the desire for us to acquire is bigger and bigger and bigger. We want to make our lives better and better. And sometimes we go overboard and we elevate money to the place where only God should be in our life. Think about it. When we talk about a person's worth, we almost always talk about their net worth. We say things like, you know, money will satisfy me. Money will make me significant. Money will bring me security. And when we say things like this, we're saying that money has the power to do things for us that only God has the power to do for us. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. If you don't control money or any area of your life, you're like a city whose walls are broken down, just waiting to be destroyed by whatever comes along and attacks. That's what your finances are like if you don't have self-control. You're like a little kid in the store that sees something that they want and begins to throw a tantrum until they get it. I want it! I want it! No, not now. I want it now! Be good. Be quiet. I want it now! Okay, be good, and maybe I'll get it for you. You know, there's a little Jimmy or a little Susie that still lives inside each of us. Only now, little Jimmy wants a fancy car or a big screen TV. Or little Susie wants a designer dress or an expensive vacation. And we've got to get a hold of that little kid that still lives inside of us. We all do it. The struggle might look different for each of us, but it is a real problem. You see, it's a dangerous thing when money gets on the throne of our lives. And so today, we're going to look at a story that Jesus told on a day when he was teaching a big crowd that had gathered. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 12. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? 
Now, doesn't that seem like a weird thing to interrupt Jesus' teaching with? And don't get any big ideas today. Don't come to me expecting me to settle your legal dispute or to handle a family squabble. I'm not going to do that during this sermon time today or even afterwards. So just sit tight with that, okay? I mean, this guy's question seems to come at Jesus out of the blue. But maybe he had a reason. I mean, back in that day, the teachers of the law, and let's face it, the law was the law of God. The teachers of the law, the rabbis, which Jesus was, were the ones that settled legal disputes. So this guy has a beef with his family. He feels that his brother isn't treating him fairly. But you notice that Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't bite at this legal question. In fact, Jesus seems a little put off by this guy's question. Here he is teaching the crowd about God, and this guy is more worried about getting more money. And so Jesus tells a story, beginning in verse 15. Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. This is one of those times where Jesus tells us the punchline. He gives us the moral of the story right up front at the very beginning. Even before we've heard the story, we know what the moral is. Jesus goes on. He tells them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Now, why would Jesus tell this story? What is the point that he's trying to make? This guy comes up to him in a crowd, and he's all wound up about some family issues. He's super worried about money and who was going to get what. Have you ever had a conversation like that before? Who's going to get dad's gun collection when he kicks? Who's going to get the antique china that's worth a lot of money? Who's going to get the coin collection? Whatever it is. Who's going to get what's left of the estate. So Jesus tells this story to help this guy get his priorities straight. Now notice that in the parable, Jesus isn't condemning the man for being successful. Not at all. He'd had a bumper crop that year. He was a wealthy guy to begin with. And in Jesus' day, if you owned some land, if you um, had some barns, you were doing pretty well. 
So the problem isn't that the man is successful. The problem is that he made money his God, stuff his God. He believed that he was self-sufficient. We're never self-sufficient. You know that, right? I see some heads nodding. None of us is self-sufficient. If you're good at your job, awesome. But don't forget who gave you the mind or the strength to be able to do the job that you have. Don't forget who opened some doors along the way for you to give you the opportunities that you have today. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, the man in Jesus' parable was only thinking of himself and how he could make his own life better. He wasn't thinking about anyone else at all. And that is always a dangerous position to be in. But even more dangerous than that was that he wasn't thinking about God. He had put himself on the throne, his self-sufficiency on the throne. And not putting God on the throne is the key to understanding this whole passage. About 150 years ago, during the Gilded Age, there was a family in New York City. They were real estate barons. They became a weirdly mysterious family in their day and age. John G. Wendell and his six spinster sisters lived their entire lives in a mansion on 5th Avenue and 39th Street where they were born. They never installed electricity. They didn't even have a telephone. They lived a reclusive life. But they owned more real estate in Manhattan than anyone else did. And they paid more real estate taxes than anyone else did, even the Rockefellers. They had a very simple strategy in their business. Never mortgage a property, never sell a property, never pay for repairs, and never forget that Broadway moves uptown by about 10 blocks a decade. John G. Wendell convinced his sisters to follow his example, and none of them ever got married. They didn't want to dilute the family fortune by letting it go outside the Wendell family. One day, one of his sisters rebelled when she was already 60 years old, too old to have any children, and she married a friend of the vicar of Trinity Church. And after that, John cut his life with God out. He wouldn't even let his sisters go to church anymore. When Ella Wendell, who was the last remaining sibling, died in 1931, her estate was valued at over $100 million. Her only dress was a dress that she had made herself and she had worn for the last 25 years. The Wendell family was so driven to hold on to their possessions that they lived like paupers. But even worse, they were like the kind of person Jesus referred to who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, greed can lead to the abundance of material things, and the abundance of material things can lead us to feel self-sufficient. 
I mean, when the house is big and the cars are new and there's plenty of money in the bank, this subtle feeling of self-sufficiency can begin to slither into our lives. We may not openly deny God or tell him that we want him out of our lives, but we lose the feeling that we are utterly dependent on God. And we think that we're self-made. We give so much thought to this world and so little thought to eternity. You can have all the material possessions in the world, but if you're spiritually bankrupt, then at best you're going to have, what, a 90-year run here on earth? That's going to seem pretty short and pretty hollow when you enter into eternity apart from God. And so here's the point. More money, more crops, more wealth did absolutely nothing to help this man. On the night of his death, what did he get? He got nothing. He received nothing. Reliance on his wealth had replaced reliance on God. And through this story, Jesus reminds us that our life isn't really about money at all. And through this parable, he reminds us that real life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions. And don't think that only rich people are tempted to make a God out of money. I know some very wealthy people who are not caught up in their money at all. They're grateful for it. They're generous with it. They see themselves more as stewards of it, not possessed by it in any way. And I've known some people of more meager means who seem to be much more possessed by money, even the little that they have, and they obsess over it in a way that makes it idolatrous. So when we hear stories like this parable, we can't assume that it just applies to rich people. You know, the people that have the bigger house or the car that's like two models better than yours is, you know? Greed is the love of money and possessions at any final, at any financial level. And we're in danger of making money a God when our desire for more money and material wealth causes us to ignore our spiritual well-being. Bigger houses, bigger barns, bigger everything mentality. Greed will often cause us to ignore our families or our purpose in life, even our faith. The pursuit of money takes time and energy And again, there's nothing wrong with money, but we have to analyze our pursuit of it. What is driving us and why is it driving us? Have you ever stopped to think about how much time and energy you spend, we spend, I include myself, trying to get more money? I'm not just talking about enough money to pay the bills. I'm talking about the extra kind of money, the kind of money that creates a lifestyle, the kind of energy that we expend to get more money to pay the bills for the lifestyle that we can't afford to have in the first place. And we think about it, we obsess about it. 
or how much time and energy it takes to make enough money to the point that we feel secure when we finally reach that retirement age. And when is enough enough? Have you ever stopped to think about the amount of energy that we spend to get more money? Because if we don't challenge that thinking, then all we really are is that adult, adult version of the little kid in the store, right? Wanting something more, throwing a tantrum when we don't get it. And our toys get bigger and bigger throughout our lives as our income grows. We can fall into the idea that we've arrived and it is then that we lose our sense of dependency on God. How long has it been since you asked someone to pray for you, for a struggle that you're going through? How long has it been that you, since you confessed to someone that you really are struggling with something, that you don't have all the answers. You know, we can fall into that self-sufficiency trap at any income level. And I'm not saying that there's a wrong amount of money to make or to have. It's really all about what we do with money, the way we look and think about money. It's about whether you put your money under the lordship of Jesus Christ, or whether you become feeling like you're self-sufficient and put less dependency, less desperation for the Lord. Because let's face it, sometimes we get into that mentality that any struggle that we have, if we make enough money, we can just fix it ourselves, right? And that's not true. We need the Lord. It's those moments when we become self-sufficient that we realize we're worshiping the God of money. There was a guy named Charles who arrived in the city of Boston in 1903. He had just $2.50 to his name. He had gambled the rest of it away on the voyage across the Atlantic Ocean from Italy. But later, he told the New York Times, I landed in this country with $2.50 in cash, but I had a million dollars in hopes, and those hopes never left me. For years, Charles did odd jobs. He slept on floors, all the while working his way up the ladder. Oh, he got in trouble from time to time, even going to prison, but he didn't tell his mother where he was. Instead, he sent her a letter saying that he'd found a job as a special assistant to a prison warden. <laughs> what he didn't tell her that was that room and board was included with that special position. Well, one day, Charles came up with an idea to make money. He started a business buying and selling postal coupons, and he promised his investors a 50% return on their money within 45 days. And early on, his investors did get their money doubled, even tripled in a short amount of time. In a nine-month period, about 40,000 investors invested today's equivalent of about, get this, $225 million. But like Mama always said, <laughs> if it's too good to be true, if, it's too good, if it sounds too good... It's too good to be true, right? Yeah, that's what Mama said. Well, Charles' investment program collapsed, and he was sent to prison for five years. 
and after serving a federal sentence, he was sentenced by the state of Massachusetts to an additional nine years, but he skipped town, ended up in Brazil, where he spent the last years of his life in poverty and sickness. And before he died, he gave one last interview where he confessed to his crime, and he said, my business is simple, it's the old game of robbing Peter to pay Paul. You would give me $100, and I would give you a note to pay $150 in three months. And usually I would redeem my note in 45 days. My notes became more valuable than American money. But then trouble came, and the whole thing collapsed. Do you know the name of this guy, Charles? Ever heard the last name Ponzi? Yeah, Charles Ponzi. It's the story of one man's extreme desire to make it rich, to have it all. And today we know other stories like that too. And even if we are not the drivers of the schemes, sometimes we're the ones falling for it. Because of the promise of big returns, to make a lot of money. And then we make some money and we need to get more money, we think. And we start to sacrifice a little at home, a little with our relationships, We say things like, just hold tight with me, honey. It'll pay off. Hold on for a few more years, and then, then, then we'll be able to enjoy the good life, enjoy all the good things that we've worked so hard for. And we say things like, I'll sacrifice and work 80 hours a week now because won't it be great to enjoy the fruit of that wealth later? Or we'll say, I'll put my physical health and relational health and every other kind of health on hold for now, just for a while. Because more money will be worth it later when I'm able to enjoy it. And that cycle sometimes continues for years. And then just when we're ready to cash in, just when we're ready to relax, maybe you lose it all. Maybe you get the news of bad health. Or worse yet, maybe you enjoy it all and you die materially rich and spiritually bankrupt because you forgot about God. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 7 says, what, did, what, what you do, <laughs> easy for me to say, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? You see, there has to be a balance. Yeah, I'm saving, and yeah, I'm working, because one day, one day, I'd like to retire And is that greedy? I don't think so. But don't ever get to the point where you look back and you think, it wasn't enough. I didn't do enough. And when does my dependency on God get replaced by self-sufficiency that I feel like I need to look at my investment accounts all the time? Or, Or when does chasing that cycle of money take a toll on my family or my relationships or my soul? You see, there's a reason Jesus said to watch out for money and greed. Because it's like an addiction. It feels so good when we're pursuing it, when that statement comes in the mail and it's going up, 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 right? But like every other addiction, when it's had its way with you, it leaves you empty and alone and beat up. So don't build bigger barns just to build bigger barns. And don't put all your security in money because that's nothing but an empty chase 
and a hollow pursuit. And so what do we do if we realize that we have fallen into the trap of serving the God of money? Well, there's an antidote to that. And it's called generosity. Generosity dethrones the God of money, the God of greed. Because you see, when I'm willing to give sacrificially, to have less for myself so that I put God's kingdom first, then I put God on the throne. Now, you can worship the God of money at any financial level. Your life purpose, though, is not to pursue wealth. It's to pursue God. And in this pursuit, God takes care of our needs, and he truly brings us a life that is life, filled with honor and goodness and fulfillment, and yes, sometimes even wealth. You see, generosity also kills that slow-growing cancer of greed that sometimes slowly takes over our lives even before we begin to recognize the destructiveness that it causes to our souls. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. I remember way back in the day when Marge and I were newer in our marriage, young and married and had little kids at home. This was before I was a pastor. I worked at a bank at the time. And I remember one year our church was having its annual fall stewardship campaign. At that time, if I remember right, we were giving about 3% of our annual income to the church to do God's work. And our church was inviting its members to consider jumping up to tithing, which is a biblical idea that means giving 10% of your income to the work of God in the church. And Marge and I talked about it, and we prayed about it, and that seemed like such a big jump. So we thought we would give one more percent each year until we finally worked our way up to tithing. So that year, we committed to giving 4% of our income. And you know what? We didn't miss it at all. We never went hungry. We always could get a new shirt or something if we needed it. The car payments were made. The house payment was made. So the next year, we said... We'll jump it up to 5%. And you know what? Again, we didn't miss it at all. God was so faithful in everything. We had little kids and and lots of bills to pay. And so finally about the third year, remember this would have taken seven years for us to get to 10%. We said, you know what? God's been so good. Let's just go for it this year. Go for 10%. And you know what? We never looked back. God has been so good, so faithful all the years of our life. You know, it's tempting to think that once we reach a certain income level, then we'll be able to give. But what we've found, both back then and today, in our lives anyway, is that tithing is a sign of submission to God's will. 
You see, generosity dethrones the God of greed because it's a tangible reminder that the Lord is on the throne of our lives and that we are not self-sufficient, that I'm reliant on God's blessings to survive in so many different ways. Some of us are new to this idea of giving. We were back then, and tithing can seem such a long way off. And that's okay. Keep growing like we did. Have faith. Take the next step forward. So the question for us today really is, where is our heart? Where are our desires? Where are you storing up your treasure? Greed and generosity is all about the heart. It's not about your money. They are heart issues, not money issues. And generosity is the antidote to greed. The generous person knows that she is a manager of God's resources who gets to deploy them into the world to help other people. She is not a sponge just trying to hoard all the resources she can accumulate in bigger barns. My friends, today God is calling us to develop a heart of generosity. And let me tell you this. It could be a very intense process if you struggle with greed as an idol. You might need some help. You might need some accountability. You might need to talk to your, to your band members about it. But my friends, God is good. And God is so faithful. God is so generous. He gives us everything that we have, and he asks us to be good stewards. Think about it. God gives us 100%, and he says, you get to keep 90%. Just give me 10%. And watch me go to work. I'll do more than you can ask or imagine. I'll pour it out on you, blessings. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. God is good. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks and praise for you are a good and generous God. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness for all the times in our lives we have made money an idol when we've looked to it for security instead of you for our security, when we've looked to it to, um, to give us our self-worth instead of knowing that all the worth we have ever had or ever will have comes from just being made in your image and being called your child. Father, we ask that you would help us dethrone the God of money from our hearts and put you in your rightful place as the only God, the God above every other God. There is no other God besides you. Lord, give us generous hearts for we know that that's the antidote to self-sufficiency. That's the antidote to greed. Help us to remember that you've given us everything, even yourself. In Jesus Christ, help us to put Jesus on the throne of our hearts.